Scripture reading today is 2 Kings chapter 6, and we pick up at verse 24. 2 Kings chapter 6, at verse 24, and we'll read through to chapter 7, verse 2. 2 Kings chapter 6, children, listen. This really is the Word of God. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver. And the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help my lord, O king. And he said, If the lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the winepress? And the king asked her, what is your trouble? She answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day, I said to her, give your son that we may eat him but she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, May God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha the son of Shaphat remains on his shoulders today. Elisha was sitting in his house, and uh, the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says Yahweh. Tomorrow about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat it. Could you imagine if my preaching schedule had lined up with the Hallmark calendar such that we would have come to this text on Mother's Day. (laughs) Instead, we'll have to settle for 
a second Sunday lunch day. But this series of events in 2 Kings chapter 6 and 7 are almost as unbelievable as they are unsettling. And among the many questions I'm sure you have are these. How could this happen? What kind of a mom eats her own child? Why is this story in the Bible? Will my children be traumatized by this story? Will they be triggered the next time dad looks at them sideways, rubs his belly, and tells the house how hungry he is? Or the next time grandma pinches their chubby little cheeks and says, you're so cute I could just eat you up. This series of events in Israel to the north in 2 Kings chapters 6 and 7 might be less shocking to you if you see them as a warning. A warning to Judah in the south, a warning to Israel itself, and a warning to later generations and a warning to us. You see, subsequent generations are going to ask, as they're sitting in exile, how did we get here? What have we done to deserve this? Why are we not in the land? Why has God dealt so hard and heavily with us? We're going to get to those questions toward the end, but now, for now, I want to walk you through this story with its little sequences and episodes and to answer this question. How bad? How bad are things in Israel during this period? And along the way, I want you to see there are actually seven problems. There's one promise buried in this, but there are seven problems that help to give us this picture of just how bad the state of affairs is in Israel. Notice the first problem is in verse 24. There's a siege. The capital city, Samaria, the capital of the northern tribes, is surrounded by the Syrian armies, all of them. Or, to put it in the more active sense, the armies, all the armies of Syria have come and surrounded the capital city, Samaria. The Syrians, you know, are a country just to the north. They have come down, they have surrounded the capital city, and they're camping out, and they're waiting them out. Their presence will prevent the ability of the Samaritans or Samarians to go out into uh, the countryside to harvest their crops. It's going to prevent any kind of trade or commerce, the ability to bring food into the city. And so it's just a matter of playing a waiting game while the Syrians continue to get supplies and while the city of Samaria starves to death. This is not the first time some other nation has come uh, to Israel but notice here, God's people, the Israelite king, the armies of the people of God are powerless to break through this siege. And we know that because we're quickly introduced to the second problem. That is, the siege is being successful because there's a famine. And if you think about the 
whole trajectory of the Bible, from the Garden of Eden to the final supper of the Lamb, the Bible is filled with God's promises to, to provide for His people, to give them abundance. And we've recognized there have already been moments in the lives of Elijah and now Elisha where a food or the lack of food is the story. Elijah supplied the widow of Zarephath with this endless supply of flour and oil. Elisha had supplied the widow with that overflowing supply of oil she could use to sell off uh, to, sell off to pay off her debts. In times of need, Elisha had healed a spring of bad water. He had purified a pot of stew. He had multiplied loaves of bread. And some of you might remember those earliest days of the pandemic and empty shelves and rising prices of food or the lack of availability of the kinds of things you wanted to eat or purchase. But clearly this is on a whole another level, as they say. Here, food is scarce. Prices are through the roof. And we're given two examples, maybe three really, but first, and we should know this, but according to Leviticus 11 verse 3, donkeys are not kosher. You're not to eat them because they have the split hoof thing. Not to mention we could probably ask, what exactly is the caloric value of a donkey's head? And under the best of circumstances, there's probably not a lot of meat on it, but uh, here, this donkey is probably itself nearly starving to death before it donated its head to the butcher shop. Nevertheless, you could buy a donkey's head for 80 shekels of silver. Now, in the Old Testament and most of the Bible, weights and measures and monetary values are notoriously difficult to establish. But by at least one standard, one shekel is a day's wages. So you could take your salary for three or four months of work and buy yourself one donkey head to eat. And the second example, no better really, is a quarter of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels. In other words, you could work all week, cash your paycheck, go to the market, and come home with a cup of dove's dung. Now, Bible commentaries, uh, commentators trip all over themselves to try to say what that word really is, is some kind of foul-tasting seeds or maybe a specific type of seed pod. It's probably not what you think it is, but I think it's what you think it is. Because the story doesn't get any better. I can't prove this, but I suspect dove droppings have value, are being bought and sold because doves are not constrained by the siege. They can fly out into the countryside and they can eat and pick through some of the grain. And when they come home to roost, and what comes out the other end might just have a few undigested seeds in it. Whatever the case, donkey's heads and dove droppings have value, which I assume means people, if they have the money, are buying them. Did I mention today is our second Sunday lunch? 
This is how bad things have become in the land of Israel. There's a siege by a foreign nation that Israelites are unable to break through, and now there's a famine that is costing lives and, going, and, and, and causing people to go to great lengths to sustain their own life. And it gets worse. There's a third problem. It's the story of the two women. How heartbreaking is this? How far removed from any sense of reality for us? The king is going for a stroll. A woman calls out to him for help. And when he replies, after saying, first of all, he's not able to do anything, he's like, what's your problem? And she tells him, and this, this is, again, gets to just how difficult things are. She says to him, she and her friend have struck a deal. Her friend persuaded her to boil her son so they could eat him, which they did. And the deal was, the next day, they would boil and eat the friend's son. But when dinner time rolled around and the pot is boiling and ready to go, the boy's nowhere to be found. The friend reneged on her deal and hid her son. And now the woman whose son had been eaten, or rather the woman who, along with her friend, had eaten her own son, is looking for justice. How bad is it in Israel? Notice this poor woman seems more concerned about the whereabouts of her friend's son, her next meal, than she seems to be about the fact she and this other woman had just eaten her son. The next day I said to her, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. Here's one way to think about this in the words of another. The normal compassion of motherhood is subordinated to the desperation to survive. There's a siege. There's a famine. Grocery prices are through the roof, and now we've got cannibalism in order to survive. Here's the fourth problem, the king. The king who has already proven to be powerless to preserve or to protect or to provide for his people. He's taking a stroll on the walls of the city, and he has to see the armies of the Syrians surrounding the town, and the problem on the large scale becomes highly personalized, highly individualized, as this distraught woman calls out to him for help. And his response is kind of a lifting up of the hands or a shrugging of the shoulder as if to say, what can I do? I can't produce crops at the threshing floor or wine at the wine press. And when she presents to him her problem, the missing boy, he is powerless to provide justice. He tears his clothes, revealing that he is secretly, at least, in mourning. But what could he possibly do to remedy this impossible situation? If he does nothing, 
the women will starve. Or at least this woman will starve. And the other woman is going to be rewarded for her duplicity. But if he commands for a search for the child, the child is found and ends up becoming a meal. I hope some of you by now have remembered how the book of Kings begins. How King Solomon asked the Lord for wisdom to be able to discern between good and evil. And how the first test of his wisdom was a court case. Two women. Two babies. One was alive and the other was dead. And in that stroke of genius for King Solomon, he made the best of his bad situation, but he determined which baby belonged to which mother. How bad are things in Israel? We are miles away from King Solomon. This king is no King Solomon. Well, now there's the fifth problem, and that's again from the king, but it's his proposed solution to this crisis. Look at his plan. Off the storyline, not told to us in Scripture, but I think we're to assume Elisha, like Elijah, had been warning the king, had been calling the king to lead the people in national repentance. And probably like Elijah, Elisha seems to have gone to the king and predicted this famine as an act of God's judgment. An act of God's judgment for the nation's sins and for the king's sin. And so we're told here the king thinks the solution to the problem is to shoot the messenger. As if the prophet of the Lord proclaiming the word of the Lord is the source of the problems facing the people of the Lord. Everything will get fixed once Elisha becomes like the donkey and his head is separated from his body. But the king is powerless to affect the plan. The Lord reveals to Elisha his life is in danger, and so Elisha has the elders sitting with him, bar the door, and at the end of the story, Elisha, of course, keeps his head. And the messenger from the king and Elisha have this conversation through the door after, um, this, after he comes to Elisha, and after Elisha is locked in the house, they have this chat. And... The king's message is the trouble on the land is from the Lord, and I'm not going to wait any longer on the Lord to do something about it. I'm going to take care of things and kill his prophet. After five problems, with two more to come, I promise, we finally get to the promise. There's a little bit of good news in this story. The prophet of the Lord, Elisha, predicts that within 24 hours, groceries will be readily available and easily affordable. Hear the word of Yahweh, thus says Yahweh. In case you didn't get it, this is a promise from the Lord. When the price of a donkey's head was 80 shekels and a cup of dove's dung was going for five shekels, tomorrow there's going to be a sale going to be a sale at the gate of the city, a 10-pound bag of the 
best flour, fine flour, a 20-pound bag of barley will be on sale for one shekel each. A head of a donkey, a cup of dove's dung, 80 shekels, 5 shekels, 10 pounds, 20 pounds of flour for a shekel each. Not exactly a bargain yet, but relatively speaking, this is a good deal. It's an improbable deal. It's an impossible deal. And this is where we get to the two more problems of the story. How bad is it in Israel? This promise, this prediction from the prophet of God with the word of the Lord is met with unbelief. The king's captain doubts Elisha's word and the word of the Lord, and notice he's described as the man on whose hand the king leaned. And if you've been here for a while, I suspect this is intended to remind us of and to be a sharp contrast to Naaman, the general of the king's army of Syria who believed the word of the Lord, who trusted in the word of the Lord, not even his Lord, but was healed of his leprosy. Notice this man's reaction. If Yahweh himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? This man who's leading at least some part of the king's army, who's close to the king, has forgotten his own history and the Lord's previous demonstrations of his great power. Can the Lord open the windows of heaven? How could this possibly be? Even if he did. For 40 years, the Lord had opened the windows of heaven every day. Raining down manna, bread on his people. Sustaining them in the wilderness. Surely he could provide fine flour and barley at a discounted price. Elisha's announcement of judgment on this man is swift. The captain is going to see the Lord's promises fulfilled before his own eyes, but he will not participate in them. He will not eat of God's provision. Those are six problems, six ways of saying how bad are things in Israel. And the seventh, to get the seventh, you have to go outside the story again. Because you might still be asking this question, why is this in the Bible? What are we supposed to learn from this? Or maybe you're asking this question, where is the Lord in this? I mean, I understand the Lord is in the promise that things are going to get better within 24 hours. And to that I say, come back next week and see how they do get better. But in this part of the story, where is the Lord? And here I need to take you all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses, remember this, is leading God's people, having brought them out of the land of Egypt and to Mount Sinai and through the wilderness, and they're standing at the threshold of the promised land. And Moses reminds them of their relationship with God. He reminds them that God is their their covenant-keeping God, 
the one who's rescued them from slavery, who's brought them through the wilderness and is now about to realize his promises to them and to their forefathers all the way back to Abraham that he's going to bring them into this land. That's what God did from his initiative in establishing this relationship. And now Moses says, well, and here's how you are to live once you're in the land. And he sets before them a series of blessings and curses. And they are to repeat these to themselves and to subsequent generations. And we read this in Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. If you faithfully obey the voice of Yahweh your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, Yahweh your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings, the blessings that are going to follow in the chapter, shall come upon you, shall overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And then he lists a series of blessings, blessings of prosperity, of abundance, of fruitfulness. Notably, in there, there's a line about opening the heavens. And then he includes this. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you in seven ways. Well, that didn't happen in the siege. And then he lists the other side of that coin, the curses of the covenant. But if you will not obey the voice of Yahweh your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And then he lists a whole series of curses. Among those curses are these. Your enemies shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which Yahweh your God is giving you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters whom the Lord your God has given to you. And you'll do that in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. It gets worse. He says, the man who is most tender and refined among you will begrudge food to his brother, to the wife he embraces, and to the last of the children whom he has left, so that he will not give to any of them any of the flesh of his children whom he is eating, because he has nothing else left. It gets worse. The most tender and refined woman will hide her own newborn child and her placenta from her own husband and from her other children so she can eat them in secret. And all this will happen if you are not careful to do all the words, words of this law that are written in this book that you may fear the glorious and awesome name Yahweh your God. You're not going to find this story in many devotionals, are you? These threats, these promises show up again in the prophets, in Jeremiah 19, Ezekiel 5, in Lamentations 4. 
describing a scene of a later era in Judah to the south, Jerusalem. We hear these words in Lamentations. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger. He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. Unsettling? You better believe it. But the distress here in 2 Kings chapter 6 and into 7, in the days of Elisha, that are going to be alleviated the next morning, is really just a precursor of a greater devastation to come to both Israel and to Judah, where a siege will not be broken in some miraculous way, but is going to result in the same kind of cannibalism to survive, and ultimately the dispersion of the northern kingdom and the exile of the southern kingdom, all as acts of God's judgment because God's people refused to listen to God's word. I asked you earlier if you, your kids might be traumatized by this story. I suspect some of them might go home today and turn to you and say, Mom, would you ever get so hungry as to eat me? I'm not going to answer that for you. But you might want to say, I hope, I hope not. I hope I never get that hungry. But even the most compassionate women, the most refined, tender women and men, got to that point. And that should disturb us. All joking aside about grandmothers pinching babies' cheeks, this is horribly unsettling. And it's an act of God's judgment because God is there doing exactly what he said he would do. Judging the people for their unfaithfulness, for their pursuit of other gods, for a king who was powerless in leading, defending, protecting, preserving, for a priesthood that seems to have vanished. And for a nation, for a king willing to separate the head of the prophet of the Lord from his shoulders because he's bringing this news to repent, to return to the Lord. And you can wonder, or maybe you're asking, why would you maybe not skip this one? Let me give you a paraphrase of Ian Duga, a professor over at Westminster. He says, if we insist on sanitizing our church services and Sunday school classes, and we never talk about the graphic content that so clearly depicts the corruption and hopelessness in the heart of man, then we should not be surprised at how few of us are able to discuss the sin and depravity in our own lives. This little glimmer of hope in the story, even the, the promise that this siege and the famine and the darkness and the depravity of what's going on in Israel at this time is going to have this little breakthrough the next day. It's just a little picture of a coming exile and judgment to the whole nation. 
which is itself just a little picture of what's going to happen to Jesus, who comes as the king who rules, who defends, who protects, who preserves, who leads us. Jesus, the king who will be nailed to the cross, bearing on himself the curses of the covenant that are due to us, that we might receive only the blessings of God that we never deserved. This judgment, with a glimmer of hope, gets reenacted, is actually pointing toward the judgment that will fall on Christ, but that will be answered by His resurrection in the morning. And of course, it's a picture of a judgment that awaits all those who have not put themselves in Christ, who are not trusting in Him, who are not listening to the Word of God. Jesus, the Word, the Word they wanted to kill and did, the Word who was raised to new life, who does give us that little glimmer of bright hope for tomorrow. For those of you who are trusting in Christ, Do please come back next week. The story gets better. I promise you. For those of you who are not trusting in Christ, it actually gets worse than this. Look to Him, the one who takes the curse that you might get the blessing. Let's pray. Father, what a dark and disturbing moment in Israel's history but we understand it better than we ever did. The very thing you predicted and pronounced as a curse for sin is coming about. How we thank you for the death and the resurrection of your Son. The Word made flesh. How we thank you that you are the God who would later say to these same people, come, eat and drink, buy without money, without price. That you would provide for us out of your overflowing abundance blessings in this life and most especially blessings in feasting in the life to come. Thank you for this. Hear our prayer, we ask it in Jesus' name. All God's people say together, amen.